Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 3, The Germanic Folk Law. Now, some of you may be wondering, why are you talking about history in the 5th century if the Magna Carta wasn't even a thing until 1215? And that's actually a really good question, actually. So I want to address that briefly. The reason is because in order to understand the Magna Carta, what was really going on with it, the terms used, the players involved, the underlying relationships, you need a proper political and legal context. And to understand both the political and legal context, it is necessary to have familiarity with important feudal concepts, political structures, and the role of the church within secular society. The socio-politico-legal context out of which came the Magna Carta stretched back centuries, as I think you will see, to at least the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, and so that's why I started our history there. I'm not going to turn this into a thorough course on medieval history, but I do intend to lay out a clear road to the Magna Carta, which is going to require us to talk about the development of monarchy, feudalism, and interplay between the church and secular authorities. Once this is done, you can probably understand what was happening with Magna Carta, and you will be able to judge for yourself whether Magna Carta is what post-Enlightenment revolutionaries claim it was. So, I hope that that helps. Now, in the last episode, we laid the groundwork in Western Europe upon the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. We discussed the various Germanic or barbarian tribes that began to migrate into the region and discussed how some of those tribes actually adopted features of Roman culture, including Roman law. But we have to remember these tribes moving in from the East came with a culture and legal tradition of their own. This law of the German people, or what we may call the Germanic folk law, was intertwined with the religious, moral, and economic systems of these tribes. Unlike today, where we like to categorize different aspects of culture into different buckets, such as economic thought, political thought, or religious thought, no such distinctions existed with these, these Germans. How this worked in practice is the focus of this episode. This is important because these Germanic roots would eventually come to be perfected through the adoption of a Christian moral order, along with Roman administrative expertise. The Germanic tribal law, the law of the Germanic people, or the folk, was primarily a system of unwritten customs that governed the way individual tribes, or what they called stems, S-T-E-M-S, would operate. Our knowledge of these customs, as you can imagine, since they didn't, they didn't write them down in any systematic way, it's quite spotty. But the good news is that we have enough information about other sources that we can at least piece together a basic idea of what Germanic tribe life was like in that period before and after they begin to settle into the old Western Roman Empire. Now, one source of information we can draw from is a historian who was born in the 1st century AD and died around 120 AD, commonly known as Tacitus. Now, among his several works, he wrote a book called Germania, in which he attempts to make an account of the Germanic tribes that lived outside of Roman control at that time. 
Now, again, the time period when Tacitus wrote was about 400 years before the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and the Germanic invasions. So when we consider his findings, we have to keep that in mind, that the tribes and societies changed and evolved after, after he wrote. However, it does give us a good idea of what their lives were like. And quite frankly, it's one of the few sources we have, so we're pretty much stuck with Tacitus. Now, the Germanic people in Tacitus's time were divided into different tribes. Although these tribes shared many of the same traits and characteristics, they were nevertheless independent to the extent each tribe had its own tribal chief and customs. They did not have kings and did not understand kingship, at least in the sense that they would after the 5th century migrations. Some of the tribe's uh, Tacitus names included the Suivi and Vandili, which you may recognize from the last episode when I mentioned the Suivi invading the area of modern Spain or Hispania and the Vandals invasion in North Africa. Each tribe had their chieftain, often referred to as kings, but again, they were really not kings in the sense that we may be more familiar with since the duties and rights of feudal monarchs had yet to develop after the invasions uh, of the old Roman Empire. Yet there was a clear line of authority, even existing at the time of Tacitus, with individual tribes. Now, speaking about the differences between tribal chieftains and military generals, Tacitus says, They choose their kings by birth, but their generals for merit. These kings have not unlimited or arbitrary power, and the generals do more by example than by authority. There are also religious priests who maintain their own sphere of authority within the tribe as well. Duties assigned to the priests, and we're talking about pagan priests here. Duties assigned to the priests include imposing criminal punishments such as flogging, not, not so much as a punishment or at the general's bidding, but by the mandate of God whom they believed to inspire the warrior. These tribes were certainly not strangers to warfare or battle. And interestingly, their squadrons or their battalions are often composed of entire families and clans. And this means it was not unusual for uh, Germanic soldiers to have their wives and children with them when they went into battle. Now, as you can imagine, this had as good points and as bad points. On one hand, the warrior soldier had a lot of incentive to fight hard because he was not only protecting his own hide and those of his fellow soldiers, but the lives of his family members. The family would provide special care to the soldier and encouragement in battle. But on the negative side, the women and children of the tribes could easily be captured and used for ransom. These Germanic tribes, they worshipped, like I said, pagan gods before their later conversion to Christianity. And despite their lack of intercultural exchange among Germania, they were reported to have worshipped such Roman gods as Mercury and Hercules, and even the Egyptian goddess Isis. But, but Tacitus tells us their form of worship was different and that it did not associate gods with human forms, but more with nature. And, and, and they would do things like consecrate woods and groves to these pagan deities. Now, the pre-Christianized German tribes, uh, they were also very into omens and signs found in nature. Uh, as, as I also mentioned, they had religious priests who would make sacrifices to these deities 
but they also employed the use of auguries, who were skilled in the, the pagan practice used by the Romans for purposes of div- divination and reading the signs of bird flight paths. So there clearly was some crossover and borrowed culture between the so-called civilized portions of the world and the Germanic barbarians. We will see in future episodes that the barbarian version of this pagan worship was easily adapted to Christianity, and it actually made for easy conversions once they were exposed to Christian teachings. Now, I had also mentioned that welfare would often revolve around the family and indeed familial relationships or kinship. Uh, it did serve as a, uh, a key component to tribal structure. Despite any access to Christian teaching on the subject during their pagan days, marriage served as the most basic level of societal bond within a tribal community. And in fact, Tacitus said their view of marriage was the most praiseworthy aspect of their customs. Unlike other pagan pre-Christian cultures throughout the world, the Germanic pagans typically would only have one wife at a time. Now, it is true for some tribes that it was not uncommon for a man to have serial wives, that is, one wife after the other, but usually it was only one wife at a time and not multiple wives at the same time. As would be the case throughout the history of later feudalism, marriages were often used as strategic means to form alliances and bonds with other families. These marriages were formalized at specific marriage ceremonies, where it was made clear that the wife was to be a partner to the man and to serve him through thick and thin, which usually means, in the, in this case of these tribes, struggles of war. The bonds of family grew out of these marriages. Adultery was not accepted and punished severely. Likewise, Tacitus indicates that contraception and abortion were simply not acceptable practices among these tribes. The children were carefully nursed and guarded by their own mothers at a young age until they grew up to be strong and sturdy, fit for tough physical and political environment. And then, ideally, these hardy men and women would seek each other out, uh, these young men and women would seek each other out to form new marriage bonds and begin this cycle all over again in the next generation. This concept of marriage is very consistent with the Christian notion of marriage, and so it was quite easy for Germans to adapt to a Christian way of life once they were exposed to this new religion that was rapidly spreading out of the Middle East uh, at about the time that Tacitus wrote. Now, at this point, I want to circle back to the roles of tribal leadership and political structure. As I had mentioned, each tribe had their own chieftain, and sometimes more than one. They commanded respect and deference, but did not necessarily have complete authority. And in fact, major decisions, those that would affect the whole tribe, were made at tribal assemblies. Funny enough, these assemblies were called things. Yes, things, T-H-I-N-G-S. Now, sometimes you may see them called dings, which is the Germanic version of that same word, but they're all the same thing, no pun intended. Now, at these things or assemblies, which I'm just going to 
continue to say from now on because it's annoying and potentially confusing to keep calling them things. I'll just refer to them as assemblies. Uh, the, the tribal chief would typically get up and, and give his opinion on whatever the issue of the day was, and the rest of those in attendance would give their assent or disapproval of the recommended course of action. The structure of leadership, it varied depending on the tribe, but most Germanic tribes shared common characteristics. For example, most of, uh, most of them had a tribal chief or a king with religious pagan priests also wielding great authority and respect. And other more influential noblemen in the tribe would have perhaps more influence and authority than a typical soldier or a non-controlling freeman. The seeds of feudalism existed in the relationships among the tribes. Authority and influence was earned by those with skill, usually military skill or strength. And in turn, those who were in a position to offer protection to those less able for whatever reason uh, rose in their position of authority within the tribe. And this is why the tribal chief would often excel in battle and was skilled in military leadership. Proto-feudal bonds among households then would develop where lesser families would commend themselves to greater, to great and respected men uh, for their protection and survival. It was still proto-feudalism because there was no real attachment to the land yet, which is a key component of later feudalism uh, by the time of Magna Carta. Although tribes did control certain imprecise or undefined territories. Once the Germanic tribes invaded Roman territory and became less nomadic and more attached to the land, then these bonds of loyalty that existed in an embryonic stage before the migrations began to solidify into a more concrete monarchical form of authority. And at the core of these relationships, especially by the time of the Germanic invasions in the 5th and 6th centuries, was military service in exchange for protection. As I had mentioned as well, uh, the Germanic folk law consisted primarily of oral tradition passed down from generation to generation, often reflecting decisions of the assemblies that resolved uh, various disputes among tribal members. We know about many of these laws because they are incorporated into legal codes after the migration period, uh, although royal edicts were added to these customary laws as well. Now, the earliest surviving Germanic folk law, or law of the barbarians, is often called to distinguish it from the Roman law that we discussed in the last episode, was the Frankish Salic law, or the Lex Salica. The term Salic law derives from the fact it reflects the customary law of the Salians. It was, uh, they were a minor subgroup of the people collectively referred to as the Franks in history. Uh, the Franks are going to become uh, an important part of our story, and we're about to start to see why. It was under Clovis that the Salian Frank tribal customs were incorporated into a written code. The code was called the Salic Law. From this Salic Law, we can learn much about the Germanic tribal law with the understanding that this law reflected uh, primarily the law of the Salian Franks, it does not necessarily represent the law as understood by all Germanic tribes. But it is this Salic law 
again, which was the reflection of the Germanic customary law, that we can see the seeds uh, or embryonic form of what we would call today uh, tort law. It, it provided that those harmed by others should be compensated by a wrongdoer for the harms that they suffered. Now, other means of righting a wrong, so to speak, were available, which usually involved duels and violence. But it was clear that Salian law encouraged the resolution of such disputes through monetary compensation, which would be set at a certain amount depending on the nature of the harm suffered. Unlike the situation under the Roman Empire, where the relevant government authority enforced the law, under Salic law, Enforcement primarily depended on the family and kin. Now, remember, I mentioned the Germanic assemblies, or the things, right? Well, these types of assemblies were still convened uh, even after the migrations occurred to adjudicate disputes and enforce customs, even under strong uh, military leadership of the Merovingians, which was, they were the first powerful Frankish royal house. So, what did this customary law of the Franks that would have that would have repercussions for centuries on the development of law and legal relationships actually look like? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at a few provisions here. I mentioned that uh, the law involved compensating victims for wrongs suffered at the hands of a wrongdoer. Now, an example would be the theft of pigs. Uh, livestock was a big deal then. It's still a big deal now. But we can see how the law treats the theft of pigs. Uh, it says, quote, If anyone steal a sucking pig and it be proved against him, he shall be sentenced to 120 dinars, which make three shillings. But if anyone steal a pig that can live without its mother and it be proved on him, he shall be sentenced to 40 dinars, that is one shilling. Unquote. So we can see from this that the customs of the Salic Franks valued a young baby pig more than an older pig, and as a result would find the person caught stealing another man's pigs accordingly. Uh, what, what about much more serious offenses, perhaps offenses against the person? Well, just to give another example, it says, quote, those who commit rape shall be compelled to pay 2,500 dinars, which makes 63 shillings, unquote. We see a significant increase in the fine above this stealing of a pig here. Uh, there is another interesting, but there's also other interesting provisions that uh, concern the harm to a person. Let's look at another one. Quote, if anyone have killed a free woman after she has begun bearing children, he shall be sentenced to 24,000 dinars, which make 600 shillings. After she can have no more children, he who kills her shall be sentenced to 8,000 dinars, which make 200 shillings, unquote. So we see here a significant difference between the killing of a woman of childbearing age versus a woman no longer to ha able to have children. While some may find this to be unjust in our modern times, what it does show us is how important to tribal society procreation was, which is consistent with what Tacitus taught us about these Germanic tribes uh, centuries prior to the migrations. Now, the Salic law also provides uh, uh, fairly detailed rules on inheritance. Let's look at some of these provisions. 
Quote, if any man die and leave no sons, if the father and mother survive, they shall inherit. If the father and mother do not survive and he leaves brothers or sisters, they shall inherit. But if there are none, the sisters of the father shall inherit. Unquote. Now, famously, the Salic law concerning real property also provided that, but, uh, quote, but of Salic land, no portion of the inheritance shall come to a woman, but the whole inheritance of the land shall come to the male sex, unquote. It is from this ancient law that many hereditary monarchies develop their succession laws, and it explains why we do not see the line of succession through the female line or even female monarchs uh, as much as we see uh, in, in other places. Uh, and, and certainly France is, uh, is the case with this, where we see the uh, line of succession uh, through the male lines only. Interestingly here, the Salic law also provided for a system of procedure, or civil procedure as we would understand it today. Let's look at another example. Quote, If anyone be summoned before the thing by the king's law and do not come, he shall be sentenced to 600 dinars, which make 1,500 shillings. But he who summons another and does not come himself shall, if a lawful impediment have not delayed him, be sentenced to 15 shillings to be paid to him who he summoned. Unquote. So we see here a fairly well-developed system of law that prior to the reign of King Clovis, who I plan on talking quite a bit about in the next episode, um, it was simply a part of the oral tribal customs that had uh, existed at the time. Now, the Salic law is not the only source of information we have about Germanic folk law and what it entailed. Uh, Ethelbert, uh, he was a king of Kent, an Anglo-Saxon kingdom in, in Britain. Like Clovis, Ethelbert promulgated a code of laws about 600 AD, reflecting ancient tribal customs. Ethelbert's laws were similar to the Salic law, and then it prescribed payments that a wrongdoer must pay the person he harmed or what we call the victim. But Ethelbert's laws were extremely detailed. Let's look at some of these examples. Uh, the code says, quote, if an ear becomes pierced, let him pay with three shillings. If an ear becomes gashed, let him pay with six shillings. If an ear becomes struck off, let him pay with 12 shillings. And if either ear hears nothing, let him pay with 25 shillings. Unquote. And what we find in these laws and important to the development of Western legal tradition is the institution we see of payment for compensation in lieu of dueling battles to the death. We also see different prices to be paid based on different classes of, of individuals, not just the harm that was done, but uh, based on who the, who the parties were. So we see that a, a priest's property is to be compensated with ninefold compensation, where a deacon's property is to be compensated with sixfold compensation. It goes on to say, quote, if a man lies with the king's maiden, let him pay 50 shillings. If she should be a grinding slave, let him pay 25 shillings. If she should be of the third rank, 12 shillings. Unquote. 
to our modern American eyes and ears, these laws seem inequitable and unfair. But from the perspective of a Germanic tribal chief, um, they make uh, perfect sense if the purpose is not necessarily to compensate the victim uh, or to punish crime solely, but also to facilitate negotiations among warring families and keep the peace within the tribe. By relying on a mutually understood custom that provides a remedy, the need to engage in retribution through war or honor killings is then minimized. And if you think about it, it makes sense for a society in which personal honor and glory is highly respected and sought after. Personal honor uh, necessarily requires one to get even uh, with the wrongdoer. But if this can be done through compensation rather than blood, then the peace can be maintained within a tribe. And this is not to say that there were no other methods of resolving disputes besides uh, blood feuds or payment of compensation or resolution by a thing. Uh, Germanic customs also contemplated uh, the, the process of an ordeal. Now, an ordeal was used as a method of proof to confirm testimony. Those tried by fire would walk over hot, burning plowshares, for example, or they might have to carry hot, burning irons in their hand, which would be uh, obviously uh, cause severe burns. But for those whose burns healed properly, uh, they were found to be exonerated. Uh, an example of trial by water would be, uh, or would require an accused person to stick their arms in hot water, and if they remove their arms unharmed, they were exonerated. As you can see, this notion of fate, it's this arbitrariness in life, was a strong belief in force within a German Germanic mentality. But the purpose at the end of the day was to establish a right, a Germanic word referring to a claim for justice. And this right, typically determined by the assembly, was not a determination of new laws but rather a discovery or a pronouncement of a particular custom that had already existed. As Harold Berman states, the law which the tribal elders spoke was binding because it was old, and it was old because it was divinely instituted. At least this was the Germanic mentality. Now, this leads us then to ask the obvious question, how could such a system, originally based on ancient pagan customs, uh, believed to have derived from pagan gods, how could that coexist with the new Christian religion uh, being spread throughout what would become Western Europe? In many ways, Christian belief ducktailed quite well on top of Germanic beliefs. While much of the German pagan belief relied on fate and feared nature, Christianity taught that the natural world was a good thing, not something to be feared, but embraced because it was uh, all the good and loving. It was the all good and loving God who created it uh, for the purpose of benefiting mankind. We, we already discussed how the concept of marriage in the Germanic tribal world matched up quite well with Christianity, too. Christianity also, it also appealed to uh, the inherent desire to maintain community and social relations within the tribes. In fact, because Christianity spread across multiple tribes, it served as a unifying force among Germanic clans, even up to the tribal level. So rather than any need to conquer and force pagan tribes to submit to Christian rule, 
Christian missionaries simply offered a new way of looking at the institutions and beliefs that were appealing to a Germanic way of life. And at the end of the day, other than monasteries built for the purpose of providing monks with prayerful seclusion, the church integrated into the Germanic political, economic, and legal order. The distinction between secular and religious authority simply did not have uh, a bright line distinction. In other words, there was no separation of church and state. Looking back at one of Ethelbert's laws, it afforded protection for clerical and church property from theft. It was natural that the tribal chiefs would come to see themselves not only as protectors of family, but of the wider church family as well. And it was this Christian influence that helped transform the tribal chief into a king. The king served the Christian God who maintained authority over all tribes, and thus various tribes were unified under one God and eventually under one secular king. This unifying force will come to dominate uh, in both Anglo-Saxon England and the Frankish-ruled Francia as the Germanic peoples uh, originating from different tribes began to consolidate under powerful monarchs. But the realization of the powerful monarch, as we will see under the Normans and Plantagenets, remained centuries in the future. By the time the Germanic tribes established themselves on the ruins of Rome, authority still remained decentralized uh, under an authority of tribal assemblies, and legislation in the modern sense just didn't exist. Although the ancient tribal customs under Clovis and Ethelbert, uh, they did begin to be written down, with a, an addition of a, or sprinkling of, of royal edicts in there as well. It was through the gentle but attractive force of Christianity that the seeds of Western legal tradition would grow into the world of the high Middle Ages, out of which the Magna Carta was born. <laughs>